some words from the letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. Perhaps he offers them to us too. I always give thanks to my God for you because of the grace he has given you through Christ Jesus. For in union with Christ, you have become rich in all things, including all speech and all knowledge. The message about Christ has become so firmly established in you that you have not failed to receive a single blessing as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be faultless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is to be trusted. The God who called you to have fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now let's come to God in prayer. Gracious God, as we come together again to bring you our praise and our prayers, we begin by thanking you for the people who introduced us to you. Parents and carers, faithfully bringing babies, toddlers, and children to experience the community of Jesus' followers. Sunday school and Bible class leaders telling us stories, guiding our discussions, and trying to answer our questions. Home group and Bible study group facilitators offering us safe places to dig deeper in the company of friends and fellow travellers. Preachers and teachers, studying the scriptures, seeking to grow in understanding and in faith, so that they in turn may help others to do the same. And especially for those who have faithfully continued the life of the church, week by week, year by year, showing us in their everyday lives who you are. But here's the rub. It's people like us who are entrusted with introducing others to you. People like us who can be grumpy and snappy, wanting our own way. People like us who can be bitter and resentful, unhappy when others flourish. People like us who can be ever so good at seeing other people's faults, but not so good at seeing our own. Forgiving God, in the stillness and quiet of these moments, help us to see ourselves as we really are and to admit to you and you alone those shortcomings of which we are aware. Gracious God, you promised to forgive us if we are truly sorry, to completely and utterly wipe out our sins as if they had never been. We don't always find it that easy to forgive ourselves, and we can remain trapped in regret. Please help us to believe that you have forgiven us, to enjoy the freedom that brings, and so to be attractive disciples of Jesus, drawing others to share in our life of faith. For we make our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. The reading is from Isaiah 
chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. Listen to me, distant nations, you people who live far away. Before I was born, the Lord chose me and appointed me to be his servant. He made my words as sharp as a sword. With his own hand, he protected me. He made me like an arrow, sharp and ready for use. He said to me, Israel, you are my servant. Because of you, people will praise me. I said, I have worked, but how hopeless it is. I have used up my strength, but have accomplished nothing. Yet, I can trust the Lord to defend my cause. He will reward me for what I do. Before I was born, the Lord appointed me. He made me his servant to bring back his people, to bring back the scattered people of Israel. The Lord gives me honor. He is the source of my strength. The Lord said to me, I have a greater task for you, my servant. Not only will you restore to greatness the people of Israel who have survived, but I will also make you a light to the nations so that all the world may be saved. Israel's holy God and Savior says to the one who is deeply despised, who is hated by the nations and is the servant of rulers, kings will see you released and will rise to show their respect. Princes also will see it and they will bow low to honor you. This will happen because the Lord has chosen his servant. The holy God of Israel keeps his promises. And from John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. The next day John was standing there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus walking by. There is the Lamb of God, he said. The two disciples heard him say this and went with Jesus. Jesus turned, saw them following him, and asked, What are you looking for? They answered, Where do you live, Rabbi? This word means teacher. Come and see, he answered. It was then about four o'clock in the afternoon. So they went with him and saw where he lived and spent the rest of that day with him. One of them was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. At once he found his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah. This word means Christ. Then he took Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas. This is the same as Peter and means a rock. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come with me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the town where Andrew and Peter lived. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one whom Moses wrote about in the book of the law, and whom the prophets also wrote about. He is Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael asked. Come and see, answered Philip. 
When Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, he said about him, Here is a real Israelite. There is nothing false in him. Nathanael asked him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Teacher, answered Nathanael, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, do you believe just because I told you I saw you when you were under the fig tree? You will see much greater things than this. And he said to them, I am telling you the truth. You will see heaven open and God's angels going up and coming down on the Son of Man. I think that one of the most written about, debated topics of Christian faith and witness has to be discipleship. There are any number of worthy theological tomes Bible study guides and other books that attempt to explain what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And many, if not most of us, will at some point in our life have attended a class or a group where aspects of the gospel record form the basis for defining a code of conduct befitting a disciple. Perhaps relating to public worship and private prayer, how we spend our money, what we do about mission and how we serve, and probably some other things as well. We think we know what it means to be a disciple, and perhaps as a result we stop seeing what the scriptures actually say, or hearing what God might want to say to us through them. Historically, Disciples were people who allied themselves with a particular rabbi or teacher, usually for life, seeking to learn from his interpretation of scripture and tradition. Among the most famous rabbis of Jesus' time, whose thoughts continue to be influential in both Judaism and Christianity, are Gamaliel and Hillel, two devout scholars whose views were vastly different and yet each within the scope of Judaism, as it was understood in those days, and still so today. Generally speaking, in Jesus' time, discipleship of a teacher was restricted to men, and one of the very radical aspects of the emerging Jesus movement is the inclusion of women as disciples. In the Gospel, children, foreigners so-called sinners, can be identified amongst those who committed themselves to the teachings of Jesus and so are at least potential disciples, if not actual disciples. But in contrast, the scriptural record also shows us devout Jewish men who rejected such a demanding lifestyle. The rich young ruler the one who wanted to first go and bury his father, which wasn't actually a literal funeral, it was a kind of one day I'll do this kind of thing. Each of the four Gospels includes an account of Jesus calling his first disciples, and they each differ in small but significant ways one from another. Matthew and Mark are the most similar, and here we have a very direct call to the first two fishermen that Jesus meets. Simon and Andrew. 
Come with me, and I will teach you to catch people. This is no invitation. It's a clear command, which, as recorded, they obey, as do James and John, another pair of brothers. In Luke's account, we have the same characters, but it's a longer and more sophisticated or more involved story. There is an extended dialogue about the failure to catch any fish and a sense that there is actually some bit of choice on the part of the hearers. They don't actually get a command. Jesus' call has a context which gives a basis for the response. They've seen Jesus do something and so they respond. John's account is very different from any of the synoptics. For a start, we have no mention of fishermen, sea, or boats, never mind a miraculous catch. We begin by discovering that Andrew and another nameless person are disciples of John the Baptizer, and it is he who directs them to Jesus. If you read the commentaries and study guides, there's all sorts of speculation about the identity of this unnamed disciple. Some suggesting it might have been Philip. Others that it might have been the one who later in the gospel is referred to as the beloved disciple. Actually, we haven't got a clue who he was. Or she. All we know is that Andrew and somebody else made the decision to go and investigate John's assertion that this was the Lamb of God. And what follows sets a pattern for the remainder of this gospel in which usually people are introduced to Jesus by intermediaries rather than by a direct encounter. More of that later. I think it's worth just recognising there. In, In scripture we see at least three different types of call to discipleship. A direct command a voluntary decision arising from a personal encounter, and an introduction by a third party. Each of the gospel writers must have had a reason for telling the story the way he did. It must have related to the message that he wanted to get across. But the variety also helps us to see that there is more than one way that people come into contact with Jesus or hear and respond to a call to discipleship. There is no one right method. There is no knockdown argument. There is no single formula with a guaranteed result. If there's more than one way to skin a rabbit or drown a cat, kill a cat, whatever it is, there is certainly more than one way to become a disciple. But before we go back to John's account, I want to do a slight detour to another broad brush view of discipleship that was in one of the other books I looked at this week. This writer suggested there could be identified four stages or phases to discipleship. First, the come and see me. Then, come and follow me. Then come and be with me, which is about kind of stepping aside to be more closely with Jesus. And finally, abide in me. Remain, stay in me. Now, whether these are stages of discipleship, as he claims, 
or attributes to, to cultivate as an authentic expression of discipleship, they certainly carry some hints of the story we discover in the fourth gospel. The writer of this book, rather unhelpfully, in my view, put some rather precise time scales on each phase. He said, this took two days, and that took four months, and things like that. Well, I haven't got a clue how he claims to verify that. He can't possibly know that. But what he does do, which is very helpful, is to recognize that discipleship is not just about those that we know as the 12, that there are lots and lots of people who were disciples of Jesus. For example, Luke records how Jesus sent out 70 or 72, depending which original Greek manuscript you look at, unnamed disciples in pairs to have a taste of mission and ministry. We can't actually say how many disciples there were, but there were clearly a lot of people who chose to identify themselves with Jesus about whom we know little or nothing. And I think that's important to keep in mind because so easily we try to measure ourselves against those we know rather than recognising that most we know nothing about. So let's look in John, at John's account in a little bit more detail. Having heard what the baptizer had told them, Andrew and the other unnamed person who approached approached Jesus, who was walking by. He saw them, and he asked them a question. What are you looking for? I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about the first recorded words of Jesus in any of the Gospels. This is the first thing Jesus is heard to say in John's account. What are you seeking What is it that you are looking for? I wonder how you would hear that question and how you might answer it. Perhaps it's a question about your aspirations. Aspirations to success or fulfillment, maybe promotion. Or is it a question about knowledge? You're seeking information, understanding, maybe wisdom. Or is it about your deepest yearnings for love, for acceptance, for health, for a relationship? Or is it something philosophical or something altogether different from anything that I've said? If Jesus came to you today and said, what are you looking for? How would you answer? The reply that the two give is at once rather comical and quite profound. In an English translation, it comes out as, where do you live? Where do you stay? Where are you staying? A literal reference to Jesus' home which, to be fair, is typically where a rabbi's disciples would go to meet with him and learn from him. Perhaps more pedantically, it could be translated as, where do you remain? Where do you abide? 
preempting that theme of abiding or remaining that will occur later in John's Gospel with the image of the vine? Is it a philosophical inquiry rather than a literal one? I don't actually know, and either is plausible. But Jesus' reply is simply, come and see. And though we have to be careful not to read in what is not said, it does seem reasonable to assume that the two, having gone with Jesus to wherever he was lodging, had a long and uh, intriguing conversation with him. They had a lot of time from four o'clock in the afternoon, as the good news renders it, until night. We don't hear any more about the unnamed disciple who just disappears. But Andrew finds his brother, Simon, to whom he makes this startling declaration. We found the Messiah! Andrew takes Simon to meet Jesus, who in turn gives him this new name of Peter. And so the pattern of intermediaries, of somebody bringing somebody else and to see what they have discovered, begins. And it carries on throughout the whole of John's Gospel. But Andrew and Peter then disappear for a while. If you read John's Gospel, you find a lot of disappearing and appearing goes on in it. It's a bit like a film, I guess, where we cut from scene to scene. The next day, Jesus is out walking, and we have another kind of encounter in which it's Jesus who does the finding. This time, there is no recorded conversation, and Jesus issues a clear command to Philip, follow me. We know practically nothing about Philip. It's only at the very end of the the gospel that we discover he came from Bethsaida in Galilee. But whatever the facts are, and we can't prove them one way or another, the finding continues as Philip discovers Nathanael sitting under a fig tree, seemingly minding his own business, and tells him what he has seen. Were they friends? We don't know. Were they colleagues? We've no idea. But they have a conversation, and then they go to Jesus, who identifies Nathanael as an authentic Israelite free from guile before going on to talk about events that seem to have some strong echoes of the vision of Jacob at Peniel. It is a strange story and the commentators sort of play with the idea that Jacob was a bit of a sleazy kind of a person, a person who misled people and here we have Nathaniel who is absolutely not a sleazy misleading person, a guile free person very difficult to be quite sure what that's all about. But at the end of the story, Nathaniel, too, becomes a disciple of Jesus. I've no idea why John chooses to tell his story this way, so very differently from the synoptics. I can't tell you why he includes this nameless disciple of John about who we hear nothing else. It isn't at all obvious to me why he chooses Andrew and Philip, who sure are part of the twelve, but are never part of Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James and John, who play such a big part in the other Gospels. I can't tell you why Nathaniel is named, but doesn't make it into the twelve. 
What I do know is that John's Gospel gives us some helpful reminders. We will never, ever know anything at all about most of the people who follow Jesus, not even their names. And of those whose names we do know, most will not have a public or identifiable role in the long-term story of the church. While some people will be called to fill the kind of role that Andrew or Philip did, others will be like Nathaniel. And most, at least measured on a global, eternal scale, like the one with no name. But they all matter. They're all part of the story. And we all matter. We are part of the story. Andrew and the unnamed disciple were invited by Jesus to come and see. Philip, having responded to Jesus' call to follow me, invited Nathaniel to come and see. But what did they see? What do we know about their stories? Did they find whatever it was they were seeking? Interestingly, of the four Gospels, it's only in John that we find any hints to help us ponder these questions. I don't think I'd realised until I was researching it this week that Philip and Andrew tend to appear together, and they certainly do on two occasions in this Gospel. The first time, for anybody who wants to check up on it, is in John 6. Jesus sees an enormous crowd who have come to listen to him teach, and he turns to Philip and he says, well, Where are we going to get enough food to buy for everybody to eat? Philip responds quite reasonably about the impracticability of such a suggestion, if not impossibility. And he says, well, you know, it would cost an absolute fortune to do this. Philip, it seems, is a sensible, practical man. Why did Jesus ask him such a question? doesn't seem very fair, does it? Meanwhile, Andrew notes that there is a small boy with an equally small lunch that wouldn't go very far amongst so many, but nonetheless he draws it to Jesus' attention. Whatever the mechanics of what happened next, these two very human disciples saw a multitude of people fed. What if we could put ourselves into that story? What would we say? How would it affect our understanding? To which deep, private, personal questions might it speak? John 12 is very different, occurring after the events of what we know as Palm Sunday. Some Greeks came to Philip and said, we'd like to see Jesus. Perhaps the fact that Philip's name is Greek meant he was a natural one for them to choose. But he was reluctant, it seems, to fulfill this request, and he went and spoke to Andrew before the two of them went together to Jesus. We're not told whether the request was granted. The narrative just continues on into the famous unless an ear of wheat falls to the ground speech. But two disciples of Jesus, again, have an experience that affects the way they think 
about what it means for them to follow him. (coughs) And what about us? Has anybody ever asked us to introduce them to Jesus? Or perhaps more likely, to show them what Christianity looks like, not in words and doctrine and theory, but in flesh and blood people? And if they've shown an interest, how have we reacted? What do we see or hear that affects our understanding of discipleship if we step into that story? Philip appears on his own in John 14, the farewell discourse in which Jesus refers to himself as the way to the Father. Philip's been with Jesus a long time. He's been a loyal disciple, but he still has questions. He still has a lot to work out and understand. Jesus still has a habit of speaking in riddles. Discipleship is still not straightforward. It's not just about following a set of rules. It's hard work that you have to keep on at all the time. Does that seem to resonate with our experience? If we put ourselves in Philip's place and had Jesus saying, I am the way to the Father, and then going on to talk about other stuff, what might we want to say to him? And how might he answer us? Lastly, but by no means least, let's just quickly go back to Nathaniel. You see, after his appearance in chapter 1, we don't hear anything about him until chapter 21, where where John has his version of the miraculous catch story. I must have read that passage hundreds of times, and it's only this week that it struck me that this is the only two places that Nathaniel appears. And some disciples are named here. Peter, who had denied Jesus. Thomas, who had questioned the resurrection. Nathaniel, the one who came from Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee, who we understand to be James and John. And two other unnamed disciples. I wonder who they were. Philip and Andrew, maybe? Two women, two children, two foreigners, two sinners. There is one more thing Jesus wants to show them. And Nathaniel and the others are there to see it. Did Nathaniel find what he was looking for? Did he deduce that Jesus was the one he sought, in whom his hopes would find Or had found fulfillment? Did the others find what they were looking for? As John's gospel ends with Jesus and Peter walking along a beach, we are left with these disciples, named and unnamed, watching and waiting. The gospel ends with a repeat of the call to discipleship. Follow me. After all that we have seen and heard, how will we respond?
Jesus said to those who approached him, What are you seeking? So how do we respond? What do we pray? It's so hard, Lord, to formulate our prayers for others. Not because it's hard to find things to pray for or about, but rather because having started, it's almost impossible to stop. Not because we don't know the good that we would like to see, but because we are uneasy about what that might demand of us. Not because we are afraid that you will not answer our prayers, but because we are afraid of what might happen if you do. And so we skirt around topics. We pray in abstract generalities, avoiding the emotional investment that earnest prayer demands, and silently give our assent to the carefully formulated words of another. What are we seeking? The people who found Jesus discovered something they were seeking and brought others to him. And this surely is what intercession is about bringing others to Jesus. But who do we want to bring? Let us quietly, in our hearts, think of one international news item this week that has caught our attention and take a moment to bring it to God naming what it is we seek for in that situation, that nation, for those people. And then let us think of one national or local news item, situation, person or people. And do the same. For all of us, there are aspects of our family life or our working life that we want to bring to Jesus. So let's do that now. And lastly, one personal prayer as we respond to Jesus' question and Jesus' call to us to come and see. We gather our prayers in the words Jesus taught his friends as we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever. 